Hi there, welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 98. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Social distancing here, like everybody. Well, but like the good people are doing anyway. This is where our daily show, Downtown, originates every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations in Maine. And, of course, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And uh, kind of a short show this week, as you might imagine, uh, like a lot of programs, uh, juggling things and adjusting to the current state of affairs here. But we did have a couple of interesting interviews from our show last week that we thought we would share on the podcast this week, one of them including... One of them features author and friend of the program, Amy Bass, who wrote a wonderful book called One Goal a couple of years ago. Also teaches a course on sports studies at a college in New York and lives in New Rochelle, which was the first city to really be uh, dealing with harsh regulations in terms of sheltering in place, social distancing. And so we'll talk with her about that in a little bit. First, we look back at a a natural disaster from a couple of thousand years ago, the subject of a brand new documentary on Curiosity Stream called Pompeii Disaster Street. It's available now for streaming. And we talked about the process of making this documentary with Emmy Award-winning executive producer Steve Burns. Quite an ambitious project. I understand uh, it took uh, more than two years to put all this together. Yeah, it was two years in the making, eight months alone in negotiation to get these exclusive rights. Um, and then, you know, we had crews there filming over that whole period for 100 days just to capture uh, each discovery uh, that the archaeologists made. And I think people would be surprised to learn that the site has been largely neglected for a number of years. Why was that? Well, I think maintenance was expensive and um, two-thirds of Pompeii has been excavated, some of it a couple centuries ago and some of it the last century. But, um, you know, they they do a good job on what they're doing. But when um, the Gladiators Training Center wall uh, fell, uh, they realized they had to go into the unexcavated areas, which were saturated with water and were funneling water um, into the excavated portions. So that's why they jumped into high gear and started this rescue ar- archaeology to um, um, uncover this brand new area and save the existing uh, area that's been open to the public. Well, that's one of the things that's going to be so fascinating to watch is seeing the archaeologists sift through the layers of, of stone and ash. I'm obviously, a very time-intensive process because you have to be very careful not to destroy anything. So uh, how, how long, um, how much of this are we going to see? I understand it's about eight months of work that we'll witness. Well, no, you'll witness a, a year and a half of, oh, wow. of, of work. Um, we had a local crew that would come in with the the um, large larger crew later, but um, they would come in whenever there was a discovery. They were working um, to make sure that the archaeologists who became friends with them would call them and they'd show up on location. So they were there when they found the skeleton of a man who jumped from the 
a balcony thinking he could escape. They were there when the archaeologists found 10 skeletons in this one room. But I, you know, they were there every day when you'd see kitchen items and tradesmen's goods, uh, amphora, pottery, glass bowls coming out of the ground. And, oh my gosh, the incredible paintings, these frescoes on the walls and mosaics on the floors. They were so colorful because they were all preserved by the uh, ash and um, pumice stones. And it sounds, too, that uh, some of the things that were the most impactful were, were seeing those items of everyday life, that even 2,000 years later, we can relate to some of those items. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the one that floored me was a pair of tweezers, and these um, wonderful young archaeologists were saying, it's just like ours, it's just like ours. Mm. I don't know Italian, but you could, at least in that uh, instance, as a uh, played with them with their hands, you could see, oh my gosh, uh, they're enjoying this as much as I am and as much as the audience will, really. We're talking with executive producer Steve Burns, Pompeii Disaster Street, available starting today on Curiosity Stream. And one of the other things that you've done is to recreate the final hours of the people of Pompeii. Can you talk a little bit about how you put all of that together? Uh, yeah, Um well, first of all, the this we have a sort of an unprecedented look at what was happening uh, hour by hour, and you know we've all seen um, uh, documentaries where you see um, a generic flow of hot gas and ash um, coming toward the the towns, but this for Pompeii, they now know that it started at midday. Um, it, the great plume out of the nearby mountain uh, that was actually a volcano started raining down pumice stones. These are light stones blasted out of the volcano. They were raining back on this resort town. So they were hitting people in the streets and causing uh, deafening sounds on the tile roofs, and they started filling up the streets. And it was building up at about four inches per hour, the archaeologists tell mm. us. And those that didn't escape early were, in a way, trapped because it's difficult to walk over these stones uh, when they build up, and the wagons and carts certainly can't pull through it. And it got to the point where people couldn't open their doors anymore. They were trapped by the weight of the stones. And so they had to endure day and night. Then at 6 in the morning, the volcano... There was a slight lull, and I think some people, I'll tell you a story of one man jumped from a balcony thinking he could uh, make it out mm. at that point, but he was caught by this pyroclastic flow, which is a wave of hot rock and ash coming down 400 degrees, 150 miles an hour, and it just collapsed walls and roofs and buried the city under 18 feet of pumice and ash. Sadly, the man who was the bar owner who jumped from his second balcony, not a daring feat because the streets were full of of um, pumice. He probably only jumped two or three feet, and but he was caught by that same 150-mile-an-hour uh, searing wave of hot ash and rocks. As you did your research and learned more and more about Pompeii, what, what were some of the most surprising discoveries? 
Well, I guess a couple. First was um, that everybody always thought that this event happened in uh, August 79 A.D. Uh, Pliny the Elder had written that. But they actually found graffiti uh, from um, some of the repairmen, and now they think it happened a month later. Hmm. Also, in, this was so emotional and personal. They would find things like children's scratching their ABCs in the doorways of houses, uh. and um, they would find what were embers in uh, outdoor um, heating, um, what would you call it, heating stoves, so that they knew what people were hanging out in that very house during, um, trapped in that house um, during the, the ex- excuse me, the eruption. Uh, what else? And they, oh, well, in addition to all those terrific finds that I talked about, they also use DNA in a way that established a couple things. For instance, the rich people were the ones with lead in their, um, bones because they were drinking out of lead pipes right. the the um the slaves and others didn't have the benefit of those lead pipes so they were in a way a little bit better off for it um they discovered that this town was under repair the the sewage system was being repaired the cobblestones were being replaced in this city when this event happened so lots of brand new things in this brand new area that's been excavated. Well, and as we go through a, a challenging time, not just here in America, but all over the world, yeah. I think this is going to be a very powerful and poignant reminder of the, the connection we all have to humanity. And it's uh, it's an incredibly timely story. Uh, we look forward to seeing it. Uh, Pompeii Disaster Street available on Curiosity Stream. Steve, thank you so much for being with us and uh, congratulations on your wonderful work on this project. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Steve Burns, the executive producer, Pay Disaster Street, now available on Curiosity Stream. We'll take a break, get a quick word from our friends at Cry, and come back and talk with author Amy Bass next on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Dedicate this to our first guest, Steve Burns. Now I don't know. Back on downtown, the podcast, Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell. Our next guest is author Amy Burns, uh, wrote a terrific book on the Lewiston High School soccer team, a team that really brought a city together in winning a state championship, that book called One Goal. Right. 
It's Amy Bass, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Amy Burns is actually a student of mine. Currently, and I don't think she's read a book, let alone <laughs> written one. Written one. Take two. Back on downtown, the podcast with a song for our first guest, Steve Burns, who I'm sure would appreciate the humor. Next on Downtown the Podcast, author and professor Amy Bass. Uh, her book, One Gold, a terrific chronicle of the Lewiston, Maine high school soccer team that won a state championship, a team made up of a number of Somali immigrant students. And uh, Amy's been on the show two or three times in the past. Love having her on. This time she was able to give us some perspective as she lives in New Rochelle, New York, the first uh, well locked down city in America to give us perhaps a preview of what might be ahead for other towns and cities across the United States. Here's our conversation with author Amy Bass. Hi there. How are you? Thanks for having me. Well, you know, we're, we're doing as, as well as we can, given the situation. How about you? Um, well, I'm at, you know, we're no longer special. I live in New Rochelle, <laughs> New York, so we were special for a while. Um, and now everyone else seems to be catching up to us. Uh, and so we, I'm not dealing with the heat of the epicenter kind of headline anymore. No, but you wrote a wonderful piece uh, on forward.com, uh, notes from the future about what it was like in, in New Rochelle. What were those early days like when you realized, uh, for better or worse, that you were ahead of the curve? Um, I think the early days, I think we were all sort of in the same place where we were just being told, like, hey, wash your hands, don't touch your face, it's fine. Um, and I think that we've learned a lot since then. Um, but I think that, you know, we saw my daughter's school was one of the first schools closed on the East Coast, um, not because there was any diagnosis or infection there, but because it was in what the governor called the containment zone, which was a circle that he drew in our city that that paid geographic sense sort of to the eight, to the outbreak, but didn't necessarily make community sense in terms of who goes to what school and, and how our community moves. Um, you know, so our kids have been home longer than most other parts of the country. Um, homeschooling has been has been going on longer. Um, I am, as a college professor, I am now converting my courses online and dealing with my own students. We were on spring break, and and there is no end to spring break, it seems. So it's you know we've I think we're just a little bit better at it right now, perhaps than than others. Um, we know, for example, I was talking to my next door neighbor. If if her family and my family stays inside for 14 days, then you know maybe we can have them over to dinner. <laughs> mm. Well, it's interesting, and you talked about communicating uh, across streets and across yards with people and you know, having people on the porch at a safe distance. And, and in, in my neighborhood today, it was, it was actually very sweet. Uh, there were a couple young kids having birthdays today in the neighborhood, and of course, birthday parties are out. So at 10 o'clock this morning, neighbors gathered on their front porches to sing happy birthday to the two neighborhood kids. Yeah, we had that yesterday. We had twins turning 14, two houses down. So my daughter and I painted, which was a nice respite from sort of the daily grind of online work. We painted a giant sign for them and posted it up. Um, it's just, you know, it's it's 
we're spending a lot of time doing long walks and waving to people, and and it's a it's an odd sense of community. But as I always am writing about, community is a lot of work, and mm. we need to put the work into it to stay connected, even while we're we're keeping ourselves so far apart. And one of the things that was especially tough uh, in your family was the realization that baseball, particularly the Red Sox, weren't going to start on time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wrote about that for CNN last week because I think that. I think that sports helped wake America up. I think that we were very slow to sort of recognize what was going on around the rest of the globe and understand that viruses don't really obey borders. Um, and so I think at the NBA, which I find to always sort of be out in the lead for progressive notions and common sense, I think and the NBA making its announcement and then, and then the other sports following suit, really taking that away from our daily, our daily lives, I think sort of said to people, this is the real deal. Uh, we got to do this. We're talking with Amy Bass here on Downtown. Uh, the course you teach, one of the courses you teach is sports studies. Do you think when all of this is said and done and we get a return to some level of normalcy, will it change the way people watch sports or depend on sports? Well, I think it's going to change the way we, we socially interact for a really long time. Um, even when we have, hopefully, knock on wood, you know, the antivirals that we're going to need and the vaccines that we're going to need, I wonder about large crowds, and, and so I wonder mm. about the way we digest movies and sports and other events where we all come together. Um, you know, I think of my, if I have to pick my top 10 favorite life moments, so many of them have to do with, with my time at the Olympic Games or a World Series game or just, you know, taking my daughter to spring training for the first time in Fort Myers, Florida. Um, and I wonder, looking forward, uh, if we're if we're still going to see that, or if there's, you know, if somebody's going to buy four seats because they need two and they don't want anyone sitting next to them. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing yesterday. That uh, even when sports resume, I just have a hard time picturing forty, fifty thousand people feeling comfortable gathering in a stadium. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And and I also wonder if, if we're going to be a little bit more open about the sports that we love. Um, mm. You know, South Korea announced that it was going to try to get basketball going again because South Korea has done a masterful job of flattening the curve, as we're starting to call it. Um, and all over Twitter, everyone was like, okay, tell me who to root for. I'm in. South Korea's got basketball. I want to watch. Uh, and I thought, okay, so, you know, one, one guy posted, just tell me who's most like the Celtics. And that's my team. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, I, I keep trying to find the silver linings. And, and if we can recognize sports that maybe aren't part of who we are in our, our world, and other sorts of things like that, then, you know, maybe there's some good. I certainly know people are way more grateful for the work that teachers do right now because they're getting a real intimate view of what it's like inside a classroom. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm a high school teacher full-time, and we're, we're just transitioning into what our next steps will be, but a lot of folks are doing some version of online learning. You're doing that with their students, and, and everything I'm hearing from teachers, and I wonder if you're getting this reaction as well, is that students are, are so happy excited to have that ongoing communication with teachers. Absolutely. I did virtual office hours today via on Blackboard using uh, Collaborate, which is the academic version of something like Zoom or Skype. And I had students just, you know, wandering in and showing up, not because they had a question or a problem, but they wanted to hang out in the room with me. Um, 
And so, you know, we were all on headsets and we were talking and just talking about stuff. I think that that connection that we have with students is is so important, whether you're, you know, my daughter's in seventh grade, getting one of her teachers sends a morning email that has nothing to do with their work. Um, sometimes it's a cartoon or a riddle or a joke, but just the, the human contact of I'm thinking about you and you matter. And that has nothing to do with tests or assessments or learning outcomes. It just has to do with, again, being part of a community and doing the work that makes people feel like they belong. Everybody says, well, I've got this extra time now and I'm, I'm going to well, I'm going to do <laughs> some of those things I always planned on doing, but yet I see, and I think I've, I've been somebody who's done it myself, uh, hopefully that'll change soon, but I'm spending more time on social media and it would be great if people stopped doing that and, and looked at some of those other pursuits. But I'm also seeing uh, families having their kids as part of their at-home work write letters to, to distant relatives. And wouldn't that be remarkable if, if we took a step in that direction and more people wrote letters or even made actual phone calls instead of texting? Yeah, no, I we have we definitely have grandma time every day. Um, my mother's 85 and a half years old, and so she is definitely isolated and staying home, and I can't go visit her because I live in New Rochelle and I'm not visiting anybody. Um, and so, you know, absolutely, any anything like that. I mean, you know, service learning projects for kids in schools right now in our district is about making cards and letters and sending them to the nursing homes because nursing homes mm. are closed to outsiders, and and what a terrible thing that is. So, how can we how can we help brighten someone's day by doing something like that? But on the flip side of that, I have no free time. Uh, migrating curriculum online, helping my daughter with her work. My husband is working from home. It's flat out. I think I mm. see less of them being home with them all day than I did when we were coming and going with our own schedules. And the piece at forward.com, a very poignant line. You said, we are a ghost ship. Are you still at that stage? Yeah, I think that we are. Um, I think that the you know a ghost ship is, is a boat that runs without being able to see anybody, um, sort of this ethereal presence. And you know, right now we know that our community is there, but not because we can necessarily see it. Um, it isn't about who's in a, who's in a restaurant or who's shopping or is it hard to find a parking space. Uh, those things don't exist right now. So we know we're here and, and we're doing what we can to make sure that everyone knows that we're here, uh, but but not in the ways that we're used to doing it and not in any way that, you know, the helicopters that for a couple of weeks were hovering over us were, were seeing. Well, Amy, we uh, wish you continued luck, a good health. Keep doing what you're doing. We certainly appreciate you making time for us this afternoon. We'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, Rich. So great to be with you all. You're one of my favorite shows. That's Amy Bass, the author of One Goal, joining us from New Rochelle, New York, here on Downtown, the podcast. Our thanks to you for joining us this week as well. Thanks to Amy. Thanks to Steve Burns. His documentary, Pompeii Disaster Street, available on Curiosity Street. We remind you, as always, the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.